You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. You are listening to another episode of The Last Aid Station with Mark and Steve. Mark, what's going on? What up, yo? (laughs) (laughs) Hanging at the crib. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of intro the show slightly different, but uh, Mark, what... uh, what do you got going on lately, or I guess what do you got coming up in the near future? I know uh, the last show you talked a little bit about you. You kind of got your spark back. You're 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 yeah. getting into it. Yeah, um, it's it's. I've just been having a lot of fun lately. Um, there for a while in North Carolina, and I think this probably had a lot to do with it. Um, the, the heat was just oppressive. Um, so if you weren't getting, I mean, I remember several days where I was going out at dawn and by. 9 30 10 o'clock it was already you know 80 percent humidity and 95 90 degrees and just rising and so you, it was really hard to get like long rides off and you would think that sometimes in the the woods and on the trails it wouldn't it would be cooler because you're in the shade but it actually felt like it's some sometimes the humidity was actually even higher in there it was almost like riding through a sauna um so a lot of that lately, we've actually gotten some more reasonable temperatures, you know, 85, 87, much better. Um, and so it's, it's nice to not have to plan your day's ride. And so it's nice to be able to like, when you have some time, you just go out and ride. You don't have to like be like, oh crap, I've already missed my window because it's now 99 degrees and 80% humidity. Um, that's bad. So, uh, yeah. That's terrible heat. It, it, it was actually horrible. I've actually ridden my trainer more in. Um, the past, well, there for a while, um, going back into like, say the early August, I was riding my trainer more in the first two weeks of August than I rode it in the first two weeks of February because it was just, it was just so oppressively hot. And, you know, all of us are working stiff. So we've got the other stuff going on. You have to plan. It's not like you can just pick up your bike, you know, come home from work. And, you know, I work, sometimes I work night shifts and, you know, you get home from work, you eat something, and next thing you know, it's 10 o'clock and you go off for a ride. And now it's noon and, and we're already hitting our high temperatures for the day. And so you're, you know, you're suffering and, you know, and it's just heat. And, you know, I know, at least my from my own personal experience, that me suffering in the heat does nothing for my fitness. Um, you know, it may add some benefit by adding, you know, uh, volume to my blood or something like that, but it's not going to do anything for how fast I can ride and how much power I'm able to put to the pedals. And, you know, then having to recover yeah. for the next 24 hours, just trying to rehydrate myself. So I, I personally don't do well in heat. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've raced in heat. I raced mad mod hay last year when yeah. it was over a hundred, but this summer I just, is, I, I suffer in heat. This summer has been the worst I've ever remembered. I've lived in North Carolina now, 15, 17 years. Um, this is the worst I've ever remembered in, you know, and it's not because I'm getting older or anything like that. It's just like this summer has just been, it, you really have to, it's not that you can't train, but you really have to figure out when you're going to train to really make, you know, get the most yeah. bang for your buck. So, you know, the, the and I don't know, maybe this is wrong. Like I, uh, I use, I use my trainer in the summer, even like if it's, it might be 70, 75 degrees, but sometimes there's, I've been trying to, you know, learn more about training and, and I've been kind of putting together my own training stuff. And there's times I think that structured workouts are better on a trainer. And also, you know, 
like you're busy all day and you can't get out and it's nine o'clock at night. Um, I got to get on my trainer, you know? Yeah. I, and, so. and I completely agree with you. When I, when I raced road, I did a lot more, but I still do it now. You know, if I'm just going out to do, um, threshold or something like that, it's going to be a short and sweet workout, whether it's on the road, whether it's on a trainer, it doesn't really matter. As long as you've got the, you've got some, a lot of cooling, which I found makes a big difference, you know, cooling fans and things like that. Yeah. If yep. you're just going on and doing two 20 minute intervals at, you know, 95% threshold. Yep. Sometimes it's or you're easier. trying to do some like well, hill some, repeat type stuff or low cadence stuff. And especially like recently, a couple of months ago, I, I got a kicker and like, I can just set the power where I want it. Yep. It's, I don't have a power meter on any of my bikes and, it's pretty awesome to be able to do that. Yeah. And the thing is, is that you can, and I can measure it. I can see like two weeks later, if I can do the same workout with more power at the same heart rate, you know, you can actually have something to measure against. Yeah. And, cool. It, and the cool thing is if you can, you can set apart, you know, an hour and a half in a day, an hour and a half, if I was going to have to go out and ride a road or ride the trail, it's almost really, I would almost be to the point of be like, I don't know if it's really, not that it's not worth it, but man, that's a really short ride. Or if it's an hour and a half on the trainer, I can get in a couple of interval workouts and it's so much easier. If my bike's already set up on the trainer, I throw a pair of shorts on and my shoes. I could care less that, you know, yep. I got a ratty old t-shirt on. I don't have a helmet on. I don't have gloves on. I don't have any of that extra stuff that you have to worry about. You know, you don't have to pump up your tires because they're already, it's already sitting right there on the trainer. Yeah, it is. It's fast. You just jump easy on it, you're done. You turn yeah. your fans on, you're done. And exactly, next thing yeah. you know, you're done. So sometimes when you have to get into short workouts, that's, that's the way to go. And, yep. and I've kind of been relying on that on the days that I can't go out for a long ride. I'll, I'll get a short, quick one in and just. Maybe. It's no different than the, the guys that like drive to the gym, right? Right. It, I mean, it's like, it's in my basement. I jump on the trainer, turn on Amazon prime, watch a movie, do my workout and I'm done. Yeah. So. Um, speaking of, uh, training, how do you go about, training the different ways. I mean, we talked about the last episode, we talked about Strava. Um, and you know, you, you're now saying that you sometimes use indoor training kicker, probably use that a little bit more in the winter, um, especially for power centered workouts. Do you do any other kind of training? Do you do group rides? What, what, what are your takes on group rides? Yeah. So yeah, I, I have been on very, very little group rides this year. Um, I am going to hit a group ride this week. I'm planning to, um, I've, I guess I have good, there's good and bad things about group rides. So usually group rides are, well, I guess they're off road or, or road. Um, I'll cover both. So when it comes to trail riding, I don't, I don't like to do a lot of group riding on a trail because one, my closest trail is 35 minute drive. And if I'm going to pack all my stuff up and drive to my, the trail, I just, I want to ride my ride and I just, that's kind of like my me time a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Like I, I don't want to stop, um, like at both ways. One, I don't want someone else to have to stop and wait for me or feel like they need to. And I don't want to stop and wait for somebody else. I just, I just want to go ride. I just want to get out in the woods on the single track. I want to like go through the trail, dodge the trees, forget about everything else in life and just ride my bike. Um, it's, it's that same thing I like about endurance racing. Uh, you know, like sometimes you're riding with other people and sometimes you're just like out there and you can't see the guy in front of you, the person behind you. 
and you're just just riding right and enjoying it right um and then there's the road group rides so the the ride i'm going to go to this week is probably it is it's an awesome group ride because you can actually you get extremely predictable so we talked about strava segments in the last one but this one of my local shops cyclovexy i'll give them a shout out but they they have like a 30 some mile ride and they set up like six segments that are a half a mile to a mile long and they usually end with a hill climb i think like four of the six but it's a it's a no drop ride uh you're gonna get to ride 30 some miles there's gonna be six sprint segments in it and like everybody's got like an awesome fun camaraderie like all-in race on those segments and but it's predictable so if you're trying to plan it into your workout you know exactly the type of workout you're gonna get you're gonna have to go out and do six hard efforts right and then ride 30 some miles in the process um but i've also been on other road group rides where it's completely unpredictable and you don't know what the heck's going to happen and you might be thinking you're going to a group ride and you're going to get good steady pace in and you may just you're just you come back wrecked right and you're like that is not the goal i was trying to accomplish tonight uh or you think you're going to go to a group ride and you think you're going to put in a really hard effort and it turns out to be a social ride. Stop every, like it's, it's a mix, right? So I'm, I'm kind of careful about the group rides that I go to and if they fit in, it just depends on what you, what your goals are. You know, I don't, does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know if I was yeah. kind of I talking mean, in circles about it. I have, it. um, I have similar takes on training for, you know, I'm, I'm almost exclusively now mountain bike racing. If I do do anything that's, road ish. It's kind of gravel racing. Um, so the one thing that I learned and I've had coaches and things like that, the one thing I've learned is that, like you said, you have to kind of be selective on the group ride you go to. If you want to see benefit from it. Yeah. That's the key. If, if you're trying, if you're trying to ride with some type of purpose or goal, right, you got to know what you're, you're going out to, to do. Yes. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's truly, the, the things that will weigh on you to not do group rides are the reasons that you're going to do the group rides to begin with. Um, so you go out and you want to go do a group ride and you, it's say it's the off season, which is probably the only time I do group rides as any kind of regularity where you're putting in long hours and you don't, you're going to go out and do a four hour road ride. You don't want to do it by yourself. And so you, you hook up with some group ride that's going to, you know, you're going to ride with them. You ride a half hour there. You do three hours with them and you ride a half hour home. Um, you're going to be not even as much as you think it's going to be steady pace. You're going to be in a draft for 80% of the time on a pace line. And so um, those parts that you, you may be at the, when you're at the front, you're doing what is probably above endurance. And then when you're in the draft, you're doing what is probably below your endurance pace. And so you're not getting that steady effort. That's not yep. to say that it's not beneficial, but it's probably not as beneficial as going out and staking in your endurance zone for a long period of time. Yeah. Now, yeah, if so, you're trying to get into road racing, like if you're going to go do some road racing, and I kind of dabbled in it a little bit last year, uh, by all means, you should go on some road group rides and learn how to ride in a pack. Well, absolutely. From from a, a but from a skills that, perspective, yeah, that's yeah. from a skills level. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think you, the other thing you have to worry about is what you um, if you're putting going to employ it as part of your training, especially as you're going into the season. You have to remember that you're going to be going on that group ride 
Um, if you're one of the faster guys, you're going to be held up by the by the slower guys, and that is even the case if you're going to a hammer fest where everyone's trying to drop each other. You're still going to be there's still going to be some type of um, give and take where um, you're holding up for certain people, you're stopping and blah blah blah. I don't have a problem with that, but I think that if you're really looking for purpose and you have limited op- opportunities to ride, and you're having group rides aren't necessarily the way to do it. I've never really been part of the group rides on mountain bikes, except in a very social where I'm not looking at any kind of training. I'm just going out. Hey, a bunch of guys are going out for a four or five hour ride. And we're going to ride to the top of this peak. And then we're going to ride to this peak and we're going to hit this trail and go back to the cars. I don't have a problem with that. That's, that's kind of cool, but that's, yeah. More and I did that a thing. few weeks ago when I was up in the UP. Cause I it was like, ah, I knew these guys were going to ride a, I figured they ride like a, you know, decent, strong tempo pace, and it was going to put some miles in and go and explore. And it was like, yeah, this will be a really good ride. Right. It's it's it just takes it's it's just under and it don't I'm not don't send me an email to say I'm slacking on group rides. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just saying that if you're looking at it from the perspective of training for an event and you're looking to exactly see yeah improved fitness, then you need to be dictating your fitness or your training to meet a fitness goal. And so, you know, hitting those power yep. zones and those sustained things and sustained heart rate. And if you're in a group ride, you're going to have to make compromises somewhere. Somewhere yep. there's going to have to be a compromise. And you have to realize that it's probably not as beneficial as you riding by yourself. Unless but, you know, like I said, the, the group ride I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm going to it because I know exactly what I'm going to get. And it's actually probably going to be a great workout for me this week. It right. fits and into my, and, what I'm trying to do, right? Right. And the other, the only other time, but those are hard to come across. Right. And there are other group rides out there. There are several rides here in, in my area that are total complete hammer fest. They're complete. They are great for race simulations in that if you wanted to race this weekend and maybe there's no race in your schedule or you wanted to test your fitness or you wanted to go to a race and maybe the race was canceled or something changed and you wanted to just get a simulation in, there are those group rides. That's another reason. Yeah. Where you can go in there and, you know, get yourself, especially when you're riding over your head, you're riding with guys that are way faster than you. It's kind of fun to go in there and just flog yourself and see how you do and go back and analyze those numbers or analyze how you feel or see how you reacted or how you body reacted or even mentally or physically to how those efforts were. And there's nothing wrong with that, but don't expect that to be making big improvements on your fitness. That's more a test to see where you're currently at. At least that's yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Speaking of riding, I got a chance, and this is completely off topic, um, but um, that's okay. A couple weeks ago, I got a chance to ride XTR Di2, um, the electronic shifting Shimano XTR stuff. That are you are you going e bike on us, Mark? Oh man, don't insult me. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going e bike on you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, it's kind of cool. So the, the, the thing that I noticed when I first got on it, the, the, of course I got the, the spiel when I, when I saw the bike and the, and the uh, rep was there showing me the bike and showing me how it all works. And it's kind of cool. It's magic. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it's actually a big improvement, at least on the feedback of the shifters versus their road stuff. The one thing I didn't like about the road stuff when I tried it many, uh, probably four or five years ago when I tried the Dura Ace, uh, DI2, stuff um, was that the feedback there was because it was electronic, it was just an electronic button. And so there was no, 
like the, the shifting feel was gone. And so you didn't know you were shifting, whether it was going to shift or not until you felt a shift. And there's a, just a real ah. short delay there. There's actually some feedback in that's built into the shifter so that now you feel like resistance there, which is kind okay. of cool. Um, the, the one thing that I couldn't get, and even the rep admitted, is the levers, the shifting levers, are kind of wonky because they have two paddles, very similar to the big paddle on a regular uh, XTR shifter, you know, the lever, you know, where you put your thumb. But they're right, I, yeah, had they're, not written one. Yeah, they're right on top of each other. Um, there's the one's not smaller than the other. They're almost exactly the same size. And so a couple times I was actually shifting down when I was thought I was shifting up because you have to look down to notice where you're at versus it just being, you know, you know, you're on the small one or the little one when you shift okay. with your thumb. Um, so that was kind of, that wasn't the wonky thing. And when I brought it up to the rep, I guess I keep, he goes, that's actually a problem that we're trying to resolve because that's something that other people have mentioned, even people that have been riding it for two, three, four months. Um, okay. that I think I could get used to that because of where the position is and things like that, or you could put something on it, um, you know, a, a little abrasive something on it so that you could feel the difference between the two. I think there's, yeah. there's ways around that. Um, but the biggest downside I see is the cost. The improvement is nice, you know, over a regular thing that you have to adjust and things like that. Cause it actually goes through and it will self adjust. Um, so the shifting remains the same and that's kind of nice. And you can almost, you can do it pretty much on the fly. Uh, but the improvement over a well set up one by system you know, a regular traditional one by system is pretty minimal. Cause I really don't, when I set up my rear derailleur, I really don't have problems unless someone runs into that rear derailleur. I don't have to worry about the front derailleur, you know, the front derailleurs. I don't have one. And so I don't have to necessarily worry about rubbing and things like that in yeah. mid race or anything like that. Um, it's really nice. And maybe if I used still use two by 10 or two by 10 was the only thing out there and, or two by 11 was the only thing out there and one by, um, one I'm stuck on my two by ten. Yeah, man. but if one by systems didn't exist and this was the <laughs> yeah. natural progression, maybe I would want it more. But man, it's expensive. Retail for this system is twenty seven hundred dollars, and that is only oh. for the um, gear shifting stuff. Um, I've seen them online for. I just replaced my rear derailleur for like fifty five bucks. Yeah, so. The, the group sets, if you wanted to make your bike um, DI, uh, XTR DI, um, around, I've seen it online at like cheap around 23, 2400 bucks, but that is only for the derailleurs, the shifters, and the battery. It doesn't include the brakes, doesn't include the crank set, doesn't include anything else that's usually included in a group set. Hub sometimes. Actually, actually that's a little bit more than my, my whole bike cost. Right. It's... It, to me, it's, 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 it is an improvement in shifting. It would be kind of cool to use that stuff where you know, your derailleur starts acting wonky and it, it automatically corrects or you could, hit a, you, know, you could hit a button and have it recalibrate. That would be cool. But, man, yeah. not for, what, six times the price of that, what that stuff normally costs? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I kind of make those jokes and those, those kind of remarks and stuff. But on the contrary, right, like everybody's got their thing. Right. So I live in Minnesota and guys are into snowmobiles, right? And they'll yeah. buy a new, you know, ten thousand dollar snowmobile every single year. Yeah. So so be it, man. If you're into oh, no, no, biking no. and you love the latest stuff, yeah. I like I, I kind of joke about it and you know, that kind of thing. That's awesome. I mean it's it's right. 
pretty cool to see technology like that and things going. So right. I don't but know. I, I think, to offer up both sides of it. No, no, no. That, absolutely. To be fair. Absolutely. And I, and I don't mean to slag people that are buying it or anything like that. There are certain people out there. And I think most of the people that are going to buy this stuff buy this now because it's not a big improvement over anything, um, especially when you consider the compatibility that um, – the XTR stuff, the max range of the derailleur system is going to be based on the max range of the Shimano cassettes, which are nowhere near the range that SRAM has. And so you don't have, you're not going to be putting those, you know, 46 tooth um, cassettes on uh, the XTR stuff like you could with the SRAM stuff. I, to me, it's not that, that much of a thing. Now, I think this right now, the people that are going to be using this and buying this group set at those kind of prices are the guys that, and there's nothing wrong with it. Those are the guys that are every year they got to have the best, the biggest, the best suspension, the best new carbon frame, the best new um, bikes or the same bikes the pros are riding. There is nothing wrong with that. It's kind of cool. Better than buying crack or heroin or anything like that. It's kind of cool that people are out there doing it. it it's just from a, a working stiff like myself, it, it's something I wouldn't even consider doing just because of the price range. Um, but hopefully yeah. this stuff will trickle down into the other stuff but as we because you can buy like a water heater and a new air conditioner for that yes you could yes yes uh, well just about uh, almost <laughs> almost almost um but you know the it's it's i mean it's it's crazy i mean to me it's crazy expensive um you know and you would think that this stuff like i like i was mentioning just a few seconds ago it would trickle down to the other group sets, but as we've seen in the roadside of things with it trickling down, man, it takes a long time to trickle down, and it really doesn't make it that much cheaper. There are guys buying the Altegra stuff, but um, it's 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 a slow process. Di two on the roadside has been out for seven eight years, and it really hasn't trickled down that quickly. So uh, I don't know. It was yeah. nice. It was kind of cool to play with, but eh, eh, <laughs> meh. good for yeah. you. Yeah, good. Um, good stuff. So normally at this part of the show, we would go into the news. Um, really not a whole lot of news going on, especially since the, the last show we recorded. Um, but the one thing we wanted to bring up is the Olympics. Now, the Olympics are over. Hopefully, you've all gotten a chance. If you have not gotten a chance to uh, talk about or l watch the Olympics or hear how the whole race played out, um, turn off your computer and go find out uh, how it all went down and then come back to us because we're about to talk about it. Okay, we're back. So, what do you got, Mark? Uh, so, in the Olympics, um, just a quick highlight: um, Nino Schurter finally gets a chance to take gold, um, beating Yaroslav Kohavi, who was your defending Olympic champion. He was the only uh, Yaroslav Kohavi was the only guy able to follow Schurter when he made the big move. With Schurter not wanting to replay a result the results of the 2012 Olympics where Kohavi came around him in the last quarter mile or so to take the win. Um, Schurter made a big move with about a lap and a half and a very impressive move. It was, he just simply rode him off his wheel and he wins solo. So Nino Schurter of Switzerland wins the gold Czechoslovakia um, Republic uh, Kohavi was second, and Spain's Carlos Coloma Nicolas in third. Now, the big story of the Olympics was that there was some guy, some road guy, I don't 
road. Who's something. that? Uh, was riding in the mountain bike race. Now, we've discussed it before about how Peter Sagan decided he was going to race this race for Slovakia um, and not do the road race. Interestingly, there was a lot of buildup, probably 50% of the press coming out about the, in the, the run up to the mountain bike race was how Peter Sagan was going to do, you know, debate of how he was going to do. A lot of guys didn't think he was going to do very well. Sagan wasn't making any kind of predictions. He was actually downplaying that down a couple of UCI, very lower category races earlier in the season. One where he didn't finish one where he won the race, but it was a very small category. So nobody was really sure how he was going to do. Um, he ended up in, in a very impressive start. He actually started behind the last row. Now he was going to, he was allowed to line up on the last row and the rows were, I think seven or eight riders wide. It was a five or six rider rows deep. Um, he could have lined up in that very last row because he has no UCI points and that's how they seed the race. Um, he elected to actually line up in a row all by himself, two rows behind the final row. And he did something. I'm trying to picture this. Amazing. So the start goes off, the gun goes off, and because he has no one in front of him for, I don't know, 10 yards or so, 8 yards, something like that, he clips in and starts riding through the middle of the pack, and by the first turn was all already up 50% of the way through the pack. By the end of the start loop, he was sitting in 7th, and by the end of the next loop, he was already up to the top five. Um, it's a kind of a trick that I've seen cyclocross racers use, probably where he mm. picked it all up. But because he had a he had no one in front of him, he could accelerate as fast as he could where he knew those guys were actually going to get stopped up by traffic in front of him. And because he actually had a little bit of a leeway, he could figure out the best hole and he picked a hole instead of going up the right or left side of the field, he actually picked a hole and went straight up the middle. Um, there's actual videos out there. They just started kind of spreading around on, um, yeah, face, it, face it, base and stuff, but it's pretty admittedly, I had, did it. I did not like actually watch it. So yeah. the, uh, um, that's interesting. But in the end, um, he ended up with a flat dropped um, down to, 13th or 14th with the wheel change and then was chasing. He was at least a minute back. And then um, by the end of the next lap had su suffered another flat and I believe uh, pulled the plug and ended his race. He was several minutes down and barely inside the top 15 at that point. Um, so, uh, but congratulations to Nino Scherter who wins a uh, gold medal for Switzerland. And it was kind of cool to see Pierce again, um, at least increasing the press coverage of that race because he was in it, uh, but hopefully got enough eyes to tune into that race. And maybe we'll start seeing more people following mountain bike racing. Even if it's just the Olympic type stuff, it's kind of cool to um, see more people watching that kind of racing. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the women's race, a complete underdog wins Jenny Rizved of Switzerland. So lots of early moves in the beginning parts of the race, mostly unknowns. It's a very small women's field, 30 riders or less. Left a separation of four to five women off the front with 
the bigger names actually in the chase group. The bigger names included Yolanda Neff, Katarina Nash, and Emily Batty, who were actually not in that front uh, four group, four riders who were actually pushing the pace. Uh, Rizved would um, help in pushing the pace. Um, Neff and uh, Rolazowska um, were the only two that were able to bridge up and stay with the Swedish phenom. Those three were able to then pull away. Neff, who had had have to bridge from that chase group all the way up to those other two, probably burned a few too many matches early in the race with that bridge, and she would start being dropped by the other two on the more technical parts of the course. Risved pulled away on the technical rocky sections, which had been her strongest part of the course in the early parts of the final lap. She gained a large gap in less than a kilometer that she held all the way to the finish. So Jenny Risved of Sweden wins the gold. Um, Maja Rosalska of Poland was in for the silver, 30 seconds down. And in the final half lap, Catherine Pendle was able to actually pass Yolanda Neff as does her teammate, Emily Batty, who would actually also pass a fading Katarina Nash. And Catherine Pendle would hold on to take the bronze just seconds in front of a chasing uh, Emily Batty, her teammate, who fell just two seconds short of the medal. And so Jenny Rizved, who is young, you may not have heard of her. She may, in some people's mind, have been considered the underdog, but Jenny Rizved actually last year was the World Cup champion in the under-23 women's category, which is the first year they really held that at, and, and promoted it as a big event, um, a big series. And then this year she'd moved into and was really starting to feel her way through the regular standard World Cup, um, but really comes <laughs> into her own by winning the probably the biggest race on the calendar this year besides the World Championships winning the Olympics in her first season racing at the World Cup elite level. So, um, And so that's uh, how the Olympics went down. Um, pretty impressive riding. I, I was really skeptical when I first saw the race, um, especially when I saw the pre-race. Uh, they did a test race on that course um, back in the spring, and I was really skeptical of how that race, because it's, you know, it's a manufactured course. It does not look like mountain biking. You know, everything's built yeah, up. Yeah, it's – interesting to see you know there's, it's it's really strange to see like a yeah like a just a completely built manufactured course. Course. i mean it yeah it has all the technical abilities you would need if you were riding a very technical mountain bike course but it's all handmade so there's steps right. there's rocks placed at odd angles there's you know berms that are built up and smooth and um, you know, the, the technical rock sections obviously were just put there to make it more technical versus what was actually there. It's definitely not a natural course, but it does, it, it was kind of a, they, everyone thought it would be a very fast course, but it actually showed that there, those guys were putting a lot of effort into climbing some of those climbs. Um, so it was kind of interesting. There were a couple portions of the course that actually had two different lines that riders could select where it was actually two separate paths. Um, or there were sections where they could choose to take the longer bermed route or cut the corner short but have to ride across the smaller technical rock section. There were some choices. They've done that in the past, um, the past Olympics in London. They did that. It was kind of cool to see. Interesting. Nothing really changed. Um, big surprise uh, was that for the most part in the last lap, Nino Scherger was not challenged, and Julian Absalon, which has been his foil 
all season long was nowhere around and generally stayed in the fifth to sixth spot throughout the race and never really challenged for um, the top three at all during the whole race. So, uh, but that was how the, that's how the Olympics go. I hope you guys enjoyed watching it. I hope they put that up somewhere where other people can watch it. Um, you know, right now NBC and at least in the United States has all the coverage locked down, but hopefully at some point someone will throw that up on YouTube because it was, it was pretty interesting racing, pretty cool to see the tactics happening and how those guys were handling different parts of the course and the little tactics they threw in different parts, you know, where the surges occurred. Kind of interesting from a tactician standpoint of mountain bike racing. Hmm. Um, on to some race highlights. Certainly, unless you've been living under a rock in the weeks leading up to the Rio Olympics, you may have heard of a certain racing celebrity who made his appearance at the Pierre's Hole stop of the National Ultra Endurance Series. A certain someone who races for a very dominant European team, likely top three in the world, a, a racer synonymous with style and panache. Dropping into our little world of endurance mountain bike racing to give it a go, so to speak, at altitude on the Pierre's whole circuit, while preparing for a race he has been targeting all season long. Of course, I'm talking about Topeka Argonne's Jeremiah Bishop, showing up to race this 100-miler in preparation for the high-altitude challenges of the Leadville 100 just one week further on. Yeah, there was a road cyclist there too, a guy who's won a bunch of stuff in France and a world championship of sorts. But he was racing in the children's race. He was racing the 50K. So Peter Sagan was there preparing for the Rio Olympics as he had previously been staying in Aspen prior at altitude since the Tour de France and then had kind of moved over to Salt Lake City trying to get in some, as he would call it, the high-altitude therapies. He was also likely celebrating that $18 million contract over a three-year period. Or at least he probably should have been. But back to the endurance racing in the National Ultra Endurance Series 100-miler, showing up for this race, in addition to Jeremiah Bishop, Many would describe this as a very small field in regards to many of the other national races occurring across the country. But man, you had a high percentage of top caliber ratios showing up. On hand, current NUE leader Carla Williams, Linda Shin, Josh Tostado, Taylor Ledeen, Jeremiah Bishop, Kip Bice, Gabe Klamer, Jamie Lamb, Eric B., uh, Carrie Smith, Corey Larrabee, Sam Sweetser, Andrew Wilcox, plus a host of other regional riders who call these trails home. Course conditions have been very dry in the days leading up to the event, but rain in the 24 hours prior to the event had the dirt packed down nicely and pretty tacky in the right spots for very fast conditions. Three laps of a stunningly beautiful course that included two major climbs and then a smaller climb in the first half of the lap then rolling terrain in the second half of each lap, with the course being made up of about 80% single track. 4,000 feet of climbing per 33-mile lap, but with the start-finish line sitting at 7,500 feet and much of the race actually existing above that, 
including the race peaking out nearly 2,500 feet above the race start on that first big, unrelenting climb. It was sustained climbing for sure, rising 1,500 feet over eight miles. In the women's race, from a gun, Carla Williams charged up the long climb, rising from the base of the ski resort with Christy Olson, who has risen through the ranks in recent years, recognizing the potential problem and immediately chasing after her and pushing over the top of the climb to catch Williams midway down the ensuing descent. Now, through fields of wildflowers, the two rode together, but on the very next lap on that very big climb, Olsen gained just enough of a gap to put time as well as a few riders between herself and Williams. She would slowly gain time on the next lap and a half, never losing time, but building a gap that by the finish had been built out to nearly 13 and a half minutes. Christy Olsen of Fatfish Racing takes the Pierre's Hole Women's 100-mile race with Carla Williams 13 and a half minutes down for Joe's Bike Shop. In third place, Ivy Peterson for Team Rockford would finish just over an hour later after Williams, and fourth place would go to Parker Tyler, and fifth place to Julie Kelly. In the men's race at the Pierre's Hole 100 was almost guaranteed to be pretty dramatic, and with Jeremiah Bishop, a late race registrant, I'm sure a few racers became excited, but likely as many became anxious, knowing the leg-throttling JB was likely to include in the opening lap. Bishop now, with a much more international focus, a focus on a style of racing foreign to many Americans, pun completely intended there, his switch mid-season to a run at Leadville called for some tough racing in the weeks prior, especially in conditions that simulated Leadville's high-altitude pools. Now, the Jeremiah Bishop of days past that raced the World Cup circuit several years ago has been transformed into that monster diesel engine that can still respond to surges, but is much more at home pushing high power numbers for long periods as part of a duo competing in that international duo format stage race. The race started as nearly all expected, with Bishop putting in a huge surge on the very first climb that had him off the front, but with Taylor Ledeen chasing hard just seconds behind. The move had shattered the front group, and by midway up the climb, only two chasers were within shouting distance of Bishop and Ledeen, those two being in the form of Tostado and Lamb. By the bottom of the first big descent, the four were together and rolling smoothly together, with no surges apparent for now this early on in the race. Jeremiah Bishop seemed very content that a foursome was a workable unit, at least for now through the midpoint of lap number one. But soon Jeremiah Bishop launched a late lap attack that was vicious and unrelenting, immediately surprising the other three as to the effort that he put out. With Bishop's lap growing, Tostada moved to the front and up the pace in an effort to at least match Bishop's speed and keep the gap manageable. Soon the chasers were down to just two, with Lamb unable to hold on to the attempted pace matching. Ladine and Tostada would race the remainder of the course together, two racers who have been known to share training ideas and ride together often on their long training days when Ladine was still a Colorado resident. Back up front, Jeremiah Bishop wins the Pierre's Hole 100, but not before adding some drama by slashing his sidewall in the final miles of the race and rolling to the finish with a huge tear and completely flat tire. 
the Topeak Ergon Riders winning time was eight hours flat. Behind Bishop, Ledeen began surging in the final lap, testing Tostado's legs. After three or perhaps four surges, a last hard effort put Ledeen snapping the elastic back to Tostado, who failed to bridge the gap one last time before the finish. The 92.50 pivot rider Taylor Ledeen takes second, 15 minutes back of Bishop, with Santa Cruz Swiftwick rider Josh Tostado finishing just another minute down. In fourth place, Sam Sweetser takes fourth, and fifth place would go to Gabe Klamer for the final slot in the top five open men's category. In the Masters race, Stan Hurtson was a leader for a large portion of the race, occasionally being joined by Brian Brothers in the category on the downhills, but always at gapping all the others on the climbs that eventually put him well out in front. Through lap number two, he remained in first with a several-minute lead, but soon Brian Brothers, who'd been keeping him honest, was off with a flat tire, and Gary Gardner was noted to be moving through the field impressively, not having the same deterioration as the others that 12,000 feet of climbing and nearly 100 miles at elevation can have on most people's legs. Gary Gardner would match Mertzen midway up the Long Peak ski resort climb and catch him, but by the top he was well away and out of sight where he would finish up the lap unchallenged to win the Masters 50-plus race of the Pierre's Hole 100. Gary Gardner of Bountiful Bicycles winning in 9 hours 48 minutes with Stan Mertzen of Muletero in second, just four minutes back. In third place, John Locke also of Bountiful Bicycles with Brian Brothers in fourth and Jesse Fair in fifth. In the single-speed category, on hand was Corey Larrabee, who has had some very impressive single-speed results in the past. But stepping into the single-speed race was none other than past single-speed national champion and a past winner of this race in the open men's division, local rider Kerry Smith. Now, Smith was the first to make his presence known, tearing up that first climb up peaked and putting the entire race behind him on notice. They didn't plan to take any of this race easy as he rolled smoothly near the front with the top of the open men's race. Meanwhile, behind in the middle front of the pack, the rest of the single-speed contenders were packed together within 20 seconds of each other, including Larrabee, Bice, and Schaefer. Now, Larrabee would push the descents and rolling portions of the course to ride himself well into third place and have a view of both Schaefer just ahead of him, as well as Smith, further on up the course, but still in eyesight on trails that snake their way up the ski slopes above him on the seven-mile peak climb. Kerry Smith would show his one step above fitness in the last lap as he put significant time into the chasers behind, finally finishing the race as the single-speed champion and fourth overall on the day. Kerry Smith of Hub Cyclery in first in a time of eight hours, 28 minutes, Corey Larrabee in second for cool clothing, 30 minutes down on the winner, and with Mark Schaefer in third for Team Eastside and an additional 19 minutes back. Fourth place would go to Adam Karch, and fifth place to Kip Bice. On to the Blueprint for Athletes, Leadville Series, Leadville Mountain Bike 100, as presented by Lifetime Fitness. <sighs> Love-hate relationship with this race, for me and a few others. The argument being, it's really not mountain bike racing. It's really not trail in most senses of the word. Gravel at best with a crap ton of pavement. And honestly, 
The very few sections where mountain bike geometries and suspension equal out to less than eight or nine miles of the course. Though there are parts of the course where the riding surface indeed does favor mountain bike tires, unless you're very agile at picking your lines on a cyclocross or gravel style bike with tires in the 40 millimeter range. Yeah, this race has gotten a bunch of media with past doping roadies who've made comebacks or even tried to extend their time in the limelight by racing this event. But we here at the last aid station, we really hope that time is done, especially for those specific douchebag, I mean individuals. But that's not to speak of the current crop of road racers, though there were a few in that other description who raced this year who looked to this very non-technical race as a chance to add an iconic event to their result sheets, giving us notoriety, as well as those who have been returning year after year to try their hand at what I think should be called the world's highest gravel race. It's a good name for it. This year, plenty of horsepower, always on hand, former winner and likely a huge favorite, Todd Wells, as well as his almost constant near-foil, in the form of Jeremiah Bishop, who seems to frequently be unable to cook up the ingredients of a Todd Wells upset. Additionally, a who's who of road and mountain biking, including Joe Dombrowski, just a few short days from the start of the Volta for Team Cannondale Draypack. Ben Sontag, Chris Jones, United Healthcare roadie, as well as a top performer in a couple NUE races this year, Troy Wells, Ted King, Roman Killen, Alex Howes, Brian Dillon, Dave Zabriskie, Sally Bigham, Lawrence Tendam, uh, Craig Lewis, Tim Duggan, Jill Cedarholm, Garth Prosser, Ryan Steers, Jennifer Smith, and world-class ultra runner Rob Carr, arguably one of the best ultra runners in the world, throwing his hat into the ring to see what it was all about for this high-altitude out-and-back quest. In 2015, for those of you who recall, this race brought a huge contingent of racers, including a large posse from Topeak Ergon's international team, who came to set the record and put it out there far enough to remain virtually impossible to break. Now, the only one to remain in that fast-moving group of lime and black was Todd Wells, who finally succumbed to the relentless pace of Heineck and, more impressively, Bishop, who led a team time-trial-style race as they tried to set up a move in the end that actually happened by then-world marathon champion Alvin Licata, striking out on his own in the final 15 miles of the course to be the only racer to ever go sub six hours in a time of five hours, 58 minutes, and 35 seconds. Now, rumors persisted this year of a potential cohesion of top pro roadies who would form an alliance to try and use their skills and fitness to set the bar even lower, including many that I previously mentioned. Now, with several fresh off a European season and preparing to finish up the season with either another Grand Tour at the Volta or upcoming fall classics, the unknown variables certainly made many optimistic for the record to fall and a fast pace was definitely going to happen. Additionally, with Sally Bingham on the line, 
the chance of her to work her way into some very fast-moving groups and further drop her record was a bet that few would have bet against. The course has remained virtually unchanged for years, starting in Leadville, racing to the peak of Columbine Mine, and then back on a majority of the course of dirt, gravel, and pavement, with trail making up a very, very, very small portion of the course, like three miles. With the elevations ranging from 9,000 feet to nearly 12,500 feet, gasping for air at altitudes that the FAA almost requires pressurized cabins or supplemental oxygen for pilots meant for complex racing at likely a very conservative mindset event for the most daring. The race started at the holy hell it's early hour of 6.30 in the morning with many lining up in the corrals as early as 4.30 and eating the breakfast or what have you in the starting area in near freezing temperatures. The traditional shotgun start and over 1,500 athletes were off down the main street of Leadville on a gentle downhill of pavement under a police escort past the Leadville Dollar General and the soon-to-be-famous Mennonite Cannabis Candy Factory. A large group of riders, numbering nearly 100, were still together, holding down a pace of nearly 30 miles per hour as the dirt roads kicked up a plume of dust, making anyone outside that top 30 hacking, and coughing. Many would relate later that the gaps that appeared in those early miles were simply due to losing visibility and unable to reference distances to riders riding just in front. Many in the near front group were hoping to simply survive the two primary climbs coming in the first 20 miles at St. Kevin's and the descent off of Powerline before the start of the Columbine climb that attacks the riders at mile 42 eight miles up to 12,500 feet, and eight miles down, returning back to 9,500 feet. Those two climbs, the St. Kevin's climb that parallels Turquoise Lake and then the iconic Powerline descent, many hoped would break the group into a much more manageable size. But figuring out how this race was going to play out in the early going was not a concern after the gun went off, as Jeremiah Bishop went off the front as soon as the police escort was out of the way. Literally, as soon as it was out of the way. Just over a mile into the race, and Bishop was attacking. And despite the group rolling on a slightly downhill rollout on pavement at nearly 30 miles per hour, he was off the front and pinning it. Truly, truly pinning it. He was soon joined by Todd Wells, who surely wasn't about to let JB extend a leash on a course that he knows as well as anyone, with Andrew Morton coming across shortly thereafter, and the three rolled as a fast-moving trio, trading pools, and putting time on the large group behind, when all of a sudden, a fluorescent green jersey shot off the front of the chase on the first climb to quickly bridge the gap that had grown to nearly 90 seconds. Joe Dombrowski was there, and now there were three, with Morton dropping off the pace with a slowly leaking tire, and the same time that Dombrowski had bridged. Dombrowski, known mostly for his road pedigree, is no slouch on the off-road vehicle, having spent plenty of time as a teen racing mountain bikes and being mentored by none other than Bishop, even after his move to the big leagues. In that group, it was obvious that Bishop had plans for a hard day, spending more time than the other two combined 
on the front of the threesome. But as the three hit the power line descent on the outbound section, he relented to allow the others to take up some of the pacemaking. Settling in on a group mission, especially given the long flat section upcoming prior to the Columbine mine, to finally get a cohesive unit together. Behind in the chase, Topi Gergon's Brian Dillon likely dug himself a big hole, increasing his tempo and driving the front of the chasers, with the others more than happy to get a free ride along that plateau. Now, Brian Dillon, you would question why he would be chasing down a teammate, but Brian Dillon actually races for the Topeak Ergon U.S. branch that really exists as almost a completely separate team from the international side of things. The chase would continue to bleed time to that fast-moving threesome up front, through the Twin Lakes aid station, and onto the Columbine mine itself, and Dombrowski began pushing the pace, at times stretching the elastic to Bishop, who started to dangle nearly 10 seconds down on the front too. Wells would occasionally take time at the front as the grade began to mellow, and soon Bishop was back in the mix. All three would hit the turnaround point nearly seven minutes up on all others, three minutes within each other. Back down the descent, and with a few dicey moments as the top three began encountering the outbound traffic on this out-and-back course. Halfway back and onto the power line climbs, a series of three or four 200-foot rollers with steep, dusty pitches, lots of erosion, and Dombrowski made a move, quickly gapping both Wells and Bishop. Now, Wells would quickly put in himself into diesel mode, and before the top had reeled Dombrowski back, riding the last two rollers mostly side-by-side as that terrain would dictate. At the last bit of power line section, dust was still falling off their wheels when Bishop, now behind and out of the picture, Wells surged just as the trail leveled out and got a gap. Soon that gap grew, and Wells was checked with a 30-second gap with just 15 miles to go. Wells looked like a man possessed in the final miles, scorching through the final rollers and pushing the tempo even up the last long drag to the finish line in Leadville. Todd Wells of Troy Lee Design Scott Sram takes the win, his third, at the 2016 Leadville 100 in a time of 6 hours, 19 minutes, and 43 seconds. Cannondale Drapak's Joe Dombrowski would arrive just three minutes later with Jeremiah Bishop of Topeak Ergon in third, an additional six minutes back. Fourth place to Cliff Bar's Ben Sontag and fifth to United Healthcare racer and psych- former cyclocross phenom Chris Jones. In the women's race, demolition, destruction. Oh, the humanity. As Sally Bingham of Topeak Ergon simply rolled across the women's field the largest women's field in Leadville history, finishing in 14th overall and sticking in the front of the men's chase group until it all broke apart on the approach rollers to Columbine Mine. Now, her time of 7.05 is astonishing. Her personal best and the second fastest time on record and only six minutes off the women's record held by Annika Longvad, the current XC World Champion. Her powerful riding on both the climbs and the flats, contributing equally throughout in the group she found herself in, made every bit of the difference to take her third Leadville title. In second place, Lorenza Morphin of the Mexican national team 
a current World Cup racer on the pro circuit in just over eight hours. And third place went to Stan Notube's rider, Jennifer Smith, just an, an additional three or three and a half minutes back on the second place Morphin. On to the Breck Epic, a six-day stage race. Unless you pick the three-day Epicurious for the first three days of racing or the Fondo route, which actually allows you to on a, for some unofficial racing and no need to compete in all stages, but you get full use of the amenities, the rest stops, the benefit all racers get without official time placings on the day. 35 to 50 miles per day of big passes and epic in the true sense of the word, single track, environment, and mountain vistas. Literally held the week following Leadville. And when I say the week following, I mean the day after. In a gutsy play, just 16 hours after winning the Leadville 100, for the third time, Todd Wells toes the line for a high-altitude stage race at Stage 1 in Breckenridge, just about 40 miles to the north of Leadville, making the drive up from Leadville, likely after a fitful night's sleep, from the effort, and I give all credit in addition to Todd's fitness to the magical recovery powers of elevated legs from Jonathan Davis and the 9250 Cycler crew who were on hand and several different types of social media showed um, Todd Wells taking part in the, the magic wizardry that those elevated leg recovery sleeves really do. But anyhow, also on hand to try their fitness besides Todd and also to try their recovery, Russell Finsterwald, having raced the Saturday, the day before in New York at the Pro XCT Finals, jumps a late night flight to Denver and finally arrives in Breckenridge literally in the hours past midnight. Also on hand, a gamut of top XC and stage racing specialists, including some that had been at Leadville the day before, like Troy Wells. Ben Sontag, Chris Jones. Joining those Ironmen, Barry Wicks, Cal Trudeau, Heath Thumel, Nick Bragg, Casey Armstrong, Liz Carrington, Amy Crayambule, Nick Nikki uh, Millison, as well as a huge host of racers competing in the duo format, age group categories, single speed and Clydesdale division, and a small number of riders completing in that previously mentioned three-day format to be raced on the first three days of the event. In an overview of the women's race, what can we say? And someone that has not been on my radar here at the last aid station previously, and to be honest, I had not heard of her at all before this race. But knowing the talents of the women she beat, and by winning all six stages of what could be viewed by many as the most important stage race in North America... Amy Crayambule is on my radar now. The team's specialized racer was quickly dominant, winning the first stage by nearly six minutes, and that was the smallest time gap to second place of all the different stages. Most days, Crayambule was winning by a huge double-digit margin, and on stage five, 53 minutes over second place Casey Armstrong, a rider we have mentioned frequently here on the last aid station and who has been targeting stage races this season throughout North America, hitting many of the biggest in the country and having won the Transylvania Epic back in what early June. 
By the end of the week, Crane Buell had been more than dominant, winning the GC by over an hour total time after nearly 24 hours of racing in six days. Second place would go to Emma Morrison of Rolf Factory Racing, and third place to Ksenia Leipkinen of Tokyo Joe's Racing, who finished just six minutes down to second place in the end. In the men's race, with so many top contenders likely tired, at least for the first day due to exploits on the prior day, either racing 100 miles or racing a Pro XC event and then traveling six or eight hours, it was likely to be someone with fresh legs or someone having, honestly, one hell of a day. The first day would not be without confusion, a little controversy, and some drama. Finsterwald and Todd Wells, you know, the guys who are likely exhausted and needed that rest, took a flyer early and were working together and had gained a nearly three-minute gap when they rode off course. They would complete the day, but likely they were short on and knew they were short on distance and they realized their mistake. Race management handed down a time penalty, which would put them one second behind the fourth place rider on the day, which considering the gap they had had off the front, likely was at least a four or five minute penalty. Through the rest of the week, Finsty and Wells were the class of the field, with Wells winning many days and Finsty suffering some time loss due to a mechanical on day two, but picking up a stage win also. Into the last day, and a much more conservative pace was played out by Wells and Finsty, who left a small group of riders move away, knowing his cushion in the GC for Wells was well over 30 minutes. And Finsterwald, his teammate, continued to ride with him. In the final GC, Todd Wells of Troy Lee Design's Scott Sram wins the Breck Epic with a total GC time of 17 hours and 47 minutes, with his teammate Russell Finsterwald four minutes further back. In third place, Cliff Bar's Ben Zontag was in at 18.23, with Cal Trudeau and Troy Wells finishing up the top five GC in the men's open elite race. For my opinion of the Breck Epic, I'd like to give the folks that run that race straight up props for the big stance they have taken on racing in its simplest form and the three rules that they manage the entire race with. Those three rules, A, don't be a dick or have never been a doping dick, i.e. there are no allowances out there for past doping suspensions or issues, i.e. no past USADA or WADA suspensions. Number two, wear a helmet. Number three, don't litter in the backcountry. That's it. Don't need a USAC license. And though USAC may, USA Cycling may say that that leaves way too much open to interpretation, even this year, no one objected to the fairness of the stage one off-course meanderings of the top three, where in a USA Cycling Race black-white interpretation, that would have forced the judge to disqualify three of the top three contenders from the race, despite no objections from others. Mike McCormick and his group at the Breck Epic do an astounding job and pull off some of the best-managed racing in the United States, hands down. Moving all the way over to the other side of the country over to New Hampshire. As part of the National Ultra Endurance Series for the past several years, 
This unfortunately may very well be the last year of its running due to race direction and promotion that is stepping away from the event for 2017. Now, hopefully someone will step in to the void and continue the Hampshire 100 in Greenfield, New Hampshire. I personally, as a fan of the sport, would like to thank Randy Whitney and the EFTA group for this amazing race over the years. The memories for racers and fans of the sport alike have been remarkable, and they built a race that was clear in a way one of the most anticipated on the calendar. After a confusing year in 2015 in which a large number of racers were found to have been off course or perhaps not having finished the full distance, much preparation went into the course markings and scheduling in which ultra runners and endurance off-road cyclists of several different distances all compete on the same course simultaneously. The course sets up with a majority of dirt roads, double track, and a little single track in the first half of the 32 or so mile course, with the biggest course profile feature being the climb up Crotchet Mountain Ski Area Hill, gaining about 900 feet or so, and then rising a little further from there to roll along the ridgeline at mile 11 of each lap. The second half of the course includes mostly single track, with primarily rolling terrain that isn't necessarily technical, but is indeed rooty and rocky East Coast trails that require line selection and fitness where riders unaccustomed to frequent re-accelerations would certainly prevail. A relatively small affair this year, with less than 200 racers stretched across all divisions in the marathon and 100-mile NUE mountain bike distances. This year, unlike 2015, it was dry, mercilessly dry, with the course consisting of dry and sandy conditions that played havoc with riders' eyes and breathing for anyone but the first rider on the trail. Off like a shot at the ungodly hour of 6.45 and with a short bit of pavement before the fast-moving front end finally settled into some double track that rolls through the picturesque New Hampshire woods and fields. Immediately at the front were the favorites of the 100-mile race, as well as several very fast 100K racers who were in there for just two laps of the course, but would play into the pace and tactics of the 100-mile racers. Out of the double track and gravel roads and in through the first aid station just prior to that big ski climb, and a select group was at the front. Schwarm, Johnson, Juarez, Wadsworth, Ledeen as well as Drew Purcell and Alex Treadwell and a few other 100K riders who were pushing the pace early, joined at the front by the 100-mile power of Dylan Johnson. Soon joining the group was a small chase group from behind, led by Francis Cuddy, that initially grew the riders out to over 15, but quickly had riders gapped off the back as the group made their way up the climb, and through the rooty and twisty second-half single-track trails. Through the start-finish line, and out onto the second lap, and that front group was now down to Johnson, joined by Treadwell, Vaughn, and Purcell in the 100K race, as well as numerous top contenders in the 100-mile in the race, now out on the course. Aggressive riding started from the 100K racers against each other, with Johnson consistently keeping them close in the event that he could use any gap they had to move clear of the rest of the 100-mile field. 
onto the ski hill and Purcell hit it hard and soon had a gap on Treadwell. Treadwell was now the last 100k racer to be at the front of both of these groups, knowing that Purcell was moving away and that the others were racing for a completely different race. Treadwell had no choice to, but to move to the front with the 100 milers following to try and drag Purcell back. Drag him back he did, and with the 100 milers content just halfway through their race to enjoy a free tow over the top of the ski hill climb, Purcell was in sight and then back into the group. With the second half of the course being single track and likely an advantage for Purcell, Soon he was gone on the attack again, and in an attempt to reach the single track heavy second section first, got himself one heck of a gap. Treadwell, with the 100-mile leaders following, was back into chase mode as the second lap completed. With the 100K event now complete, Purcell, who would hold off Treadwell for the win in the men's open, and Treadwell would take second. The 100-milers now took to the opening miles at lap three at a much more pleasant pace with frequent communication and conversation occurring within the group, now down to simply Dylan Johnson, Taylor Ledeen, Gordon Wadsworth, Brian Schwarm, and Tinker Juarez. With a relaxed stop at the aid station near the base of the ski hill, well, where all riders were able to restock and rehydrate without being pushed, the group hit the base of the climb together and Dylan Johnson attacked with a vicious acceleration that surprised a few in the group. Soon, Brian Schwarm and Taylor Ledeen were on the move, gapping Wadsworth and Juarez in an effort to bring Johnson back. 20 miles to go, and Johnson already had a minute on the chasers as the climb finally topped out. Schwarm and Ledeen would continue in chase mode, but within miles, Schwarm was out solo in his efforts as Ledeen began suffering some cramping and soon was caught by Wadsworth and Juarez chasing from behind. With just five miles remaining in the race, and knowing Ledeen was suffering a bit, Juarez attacked in the single track in an effort to drop Ledeen, with Wadsworth racing a completely different category in the single speed. Ledeen was soon in the Wadsworth and Juarez's duo's mirror, and Wadsworth would soon be realizing his effort to hold Juarez's wheel was fruitless and with little benefit, and he got the coast to the line in the final miles fourth overall, and first single speed to Juarez's third. Prior to the arrival of the line on the front of the field, Dylan Johnson had had a fantastic showing and a great bit of final miles, despite the fitness of Schwarm, who is legendary in his preparation for these events, though even a bit analytical, chasing from behind. But Johnson would put in over five minutes into Schwarm in those final 18 miles, winning in a time of 7 hours, 29 minutes. Think Green's Brian Schwarm would arrive five minutes later with Cannondale Tinker Juarez just three minutes further back. Fourth place in the open men's division would be held by Taylor Ledeen, who got past his cramps. The 92.50 rider would arrive nearly 20 minutes later with Gregory Jenkatis for Team Bike Express, in fifth in eight hours and 20 minutes. In the single speed category, of course, Blue Ridge Cyclery's Wadsworth mixed in among the top elites racing for the top spot on all three laps. He was well within the top five all day until, of course, Johnson hit the gas at a level that even the top NUE guys were probably envious of. Regardless of their gearing choices, Wadsworth, who would roll through in fourth overall just behind Tinker Juarez, 
who had hit the gas as previously mentioned in the final miles, and according to a couple interviews, to distance himself from Wadsworth. Perhaps someone should grab Tinker and pull him aside and explain that Wadsworth was on a single speed and racing in a completely separate division. He wouldn't factor into the results, something I personally think should change for Wadsworth, for the overall. The idea that there is an open-geared men's division and a small person, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think that the fastest person on the day should be rewarded. The Blue Ridge Cycler Rider would win the single speed division in 7 hours, 58 minutes, and 44 seconds. With his mustache now removed, we can only question the effects of aerodynamics on the very rugged Hampshire 100 course. Behind Wadsworth, Will Christman had pushed himself to keep the time gaps close in the early parts of the race, often racing solo on the first lap or two alone to keep those very manageable time gaps after lap one in the single digits through the start-finish line. Denim Bikes Chrisman would use very fast racers in the top 10 overall to keep his efforts high, and despite a heavy crash in the near middle of the race that left him checking his head sense trail side, he would turn very fast lap times on a rigid single speed on this relentless course for second place in the division, 45 minutes down on the winner. In third place, throughout much of the day, NUE Ironman Kip Bice was again rolling. Bice is making a serious effort at racing as many NUEs as possible this season, and for the most part, driving to them on top of those efforts themselves. Impossible to race all simply due to the scheduling of some events raced on the same days, but Bice is on track to race 12 of the 1400s this season. How flat he will be? By the time Fool's Gold rolls around is anyone's guess, but I got to hand it to this racer for showing some guts in doing something I am certain has never really been tempted before. Kip Bice would remain in the top three all day of the single speed racers, but would have some fading in the end with his last lap, perhaps the long season finally wearing on him, perhaps simply enjoying the ride. KJ coaching Old Town Bikes rider, Kip Bice for third, another 40 minutes down with Shane Kramer and Doug Wilson wrapping up the single speed top five in that order. In the women's race, I hate to be prophetic, but didn't I mention Ann Pike a few episodes ago regarding her huge improvements in the past two seasons after her Mohican race breakthrough, at least in my mind breakthrough? I expected her to continue to move up the results sheet. So Ann Pike showed strong maturity in mountain bike racing, mental toughness in employing a strategy that left her well down the women's order after the first lap. Her strategy to let the race come to her with a knowledge of the course and knowing how difficult the roots, rocks, off-camber turns, and repeated reaccelerations on the second half of each lap would wear on riders over 100 miles. Pike would pick off those racers in front of her in the women's division one at a time through the majority of the end of lap one and then into lap two to eventually hit the finish line with a decent cushion back to second. The DNA movement Penetron racer would win in 10 hours, 52 minutes. Second place to Nemba racers, Elizabeth 
Bove, who would arrive nearly 80 minutes later, and Julie Wang-Tucker in third in just over 13 hours. In the Masters race, quite a bit of back and forth with Jeff Clayton, Roger Massey, and Carl Regler all trading places through the majority of the first lap, with all three well inside the top 15. At one point or other in the first lap, all three held the front-runner position in the Masters category, but on to the start of lap two, and Massey was losing ground to Clayton and Regler, who were seen riding together through the start-finish line. Out onto lap two, and Clayton had gained a gap that he grew through the remainder of the race, putting nearly 10 minutes per lap into a chasing Carl Regler. Meanwhile, Massey had caught a just slightly fading Regler through the midpoint of lap three and was able to accelerate into the second half single track and open the gap up that he held all the way to the line. In the end of the race, Jeff Clayton of Georgia Neurosurgical takes the win in eight hours, 48 minutes with Roger Massey of Rare Disease cycling in second in 9.05 and Carl Regler in third, just six minutes back of Massey. And so those are the race highlights I have, Steve. Um, what have you got? You Matahe happening up your way? How did that all go down? Yeah, yeah, Matahe happened up my way. It's uh, still about 700 miles west of me. But uh, it is kind of in my neck of the woods. And I, I did the race last year, so I'm familiar with the course. I was actually planned to go out there this year, uh, but uh, kind of rescheduled my summer after uh, injuring the ribs. But uh, at any rate, we've we've talked about Matahe quite a bit and, and that kind of thing over various episodes of the show and, and whatnot. But it's a uh, point-to-point race out in the Badlands of North Dakota. Heat can usually be a, a, a big, big player in it. Uh, you're, you're pretty much exposed, uh, you know, for most of the race. There's not a lot of shade. Uh, you know, last year temperatures were, were well over 100 degrees. And uh, this year, it, uh, I don't believe it was as hot, but it was still, still pretty hot. Uh, but at any rate, there's uh, usually a little over a, a hundred hundred people in the race. There's a there's a lot of climbing. There's uh, eleven to twelve thousand feet of climbing in the race. Um, there's uh, single track, and most of it is off road. Most of it is single track. It can be kind of rugged. It's it's just uh, like kind of hiking trail. There's loose gravel on the climbs. There's uh, everyone's going to get off their bike at some point. Um, but uh, Kelly McElkey was back again, defending winner of the Matahey 100. Uh, I believe he's won it at least two times. Uh, so he was back again. But I'm going to kind of come at this at a slightly different angle because I know there's been some interest from single speeders out there to the Matahey to see how fast a single speeder can get through there. I personally have gotten a uh, message from some some single speeders curious about the course and and I know others have yeah. but uh Ben Koenig was uh he was riding a single speed and uh diving just diving into the race Ben came out of the first climb sitting in the top 10 and uh right on Jason Wavy's wheel through the uh prairie flats and for those that don't know you uh head out of a campground you head into some single track, and then you have a 
climbing right off the bat, and then you head into a prairie, which is about the only flat section of the 107 miles that you're going to ride. And so anyways, uh, Ben worked his way up to third position before hitting China Wall, which is around the 15-mile mark, and he could see the second-place person out ahead of him and eventually reeled them in around mile 16 and then was able to actually catch glimpses of Kelly McGelkey out in the distance. Uh, don't have a lot of details on the middle part of the race. Positions didn't change much in the field till after aid station three. And Jason, Jason Wiebe was coming up into aid three as Ben Koenig was headed back out on the trail. Ben found himself uh, walking a bit in these later sections of the race with his 34 by 18 single speed. And Jason Wiebe was gaining ground and caught Ben while he was tending to a broken spoke. Uh, Ben's wheel held up, and he he ended up catching Jason again at the last checkpoint where the two headed to the finish together. Uh, Jason Weeby held a gate open up for uh, Ben Koenig. There's cattle gates because you're actually raced through cattle pasture. Right. Uh, and then Jason poured on the heat in the final hills to the finish. Ben kept on Jason's wheel. Uh, and kept him in sight for the first five to six heel, hills, but couldn't couldn't hang on his hang on with his single speed. Uh, he ended up with uh, Kelly McGelkey again taking the win from Honey Stinger, finishing first in nine hours and thirty one minutes, a little slower than uh, his last year's time. And Jason Weeby of Country Cycle finishing second in ten hours and two minutes, with Ben Koenig riding a single speed in his only race of the year finishing third in 10 hours and five minutes. Um, I bring up the single speed thing because if you actually take a look at it, the second place single speeder was actually fifth overall. So out of the top five finishers in the Matahe 100, you actually had two of the single speeders uh, with Derek Anderson being the other single speeder. Uh, And then, do you think that's because um, the train just really falls into the, you know, like a single speeder's wheelhouse? Like it just works really well or is. And I don't know. It, yeah. It's, you know, so there's some really fast open sections through some of the prairies where you, you kind of run out of gear regardless. Uh, but there's some really, there's some really, really steep climbs. So, you know, what did I say? He was running a 34-18. Yeah. Man, that is a, that's a big gear to be pushing up that first, first climb at the start of the race. Right. And, and it's surprising that, I mean, it actually, he actually picked up a few spots on that first climb. So, I mean, it's really, really impressive riding. And I think, I think Ben, um, uh, he does some cross country skiing too. If, if, if I know that he's. He's from Wisconsin originally, but I believe. But, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, Ben's, Ben Wellneck's done the, done the Mata Hay on single speeds and, and he's, he lives out there. So he, he, you know, he would know. But, uh, 10 hours on a single speed, I think is pretty impressive out there. And it might be some, there's some of those climbs that are so steep that, you know, uh, I know I, I had to walk some of them and I'm running a two by 10, right? Right. Whatever, whatever granny gear I wanted, I had and I still had to walk. So, you know, there's, well, I mean, uh, if, if you take it from the perspective of if, if 
you're having to walk it no matter what gear you're on, then why not be a yeah. single speed? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know like the mindset of some single speeders are, you know, if you're having to put it in the hardest gear and you're barely turning up the climb and you're putting out 400 Watts to get over some, you know, 20% section of trail and barely turning the pedals over and, you know, your knees are burning and everything else to, to go up a 200 yard section of trail. It might be faster to do what the single speeder is probably going to do when he gets to that same section is grab his bike and run up it. Yeah. It, it, it very well might be faster. And maybe that's probably what the, the geared rider should have done. But to think like a singer speeder, sometimes um, it, that just makes sense. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know specifically last year I was with Ben Wellmack in on a, a couple of climbs that, uh, you know, there I was on a geared bike and we were both walking. Right. You know what I mean? So that being said, I mean, Kelly Magelke on a geared bike, I, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, uh, but I don't believe anybody's broken the nine hour mark. And uh, two single speeders are, you know, 10 hours and five minutes, 10 hours and 28 minutes. So pretty impressive riding. So I I just thought that was some some good attention to call that. So congrats, guys. That's definitely a. um, And then also. That's a uh, long 100 miles, too. That's not like your. Yeah, it's it's not the 100 mile race you go to and it's like you clock 96. It's a 100 mile race you go to and you clock 106 or 107. Yeah. Um, And then from from the women's side of it, uh, you know, last year, Carrie Lowry, I believe, was just over 12 hours. And this year, uh, Kristen Legan finished in 11 hours and 52 minutes from Colorado. Cool. Impressive, how right? Is, how is the uh, how are the temperature there this year? Do you know? Uh, you know, I don't know the exact temperatures that were out there this year. I don't believe it was as hot as last year, but it was still it was still warm. I, I believe you were still up in the nineties. And yeah, and, I didn't hear like last year. I heard immediately of the ridiculous heat on that yeah. day and all the problems it caused and things like that. I didn't hear it, any. It was that, hot so, last year. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. And I and I believe uh, you know. Kelly Magelke went into it, uh, I think, admittedly not in, you know, peak form versus, you know, previous years. Right. And his time was slightly slower than he, he previously was. But there was also this year there was there was more people under 12 hours this year than there was last year. Well, cool. That's the highlights for today. Um, hope you guys enjoyed them. Um, we're definitely going to continue to bring those to you and get caught up on the ones that were kind of missing or still researching to figure out how the races were separated and won. Um, while we're mentioning races, um, just a reminder, please make sure you guys, um, especially um, for those listeners that like the last aid station, that's the kind of racing you like to do. That's the kind of event you like to participate in. That's where a lot of these discounts are coming at for our listeners, and they are for endurance mountain bike events. There are four listed currently, the Grand Traverse mountain bike event in Aspen, Colorado, which includes not only mountain bike, but 
also a ultra running event and things like that. But that's coming up in early September. Um, the Oregon 24, which of course is a 24 hour mountain bike race for both solo and teams. The 18 hours of Scouts Honor taking place out here on the East Coast in Richmond, Virginia on September 24th. And then looking way off into the future, if you're planning your fat bike season, the Fat Bike Frozen 40, one of the better um, fat bike races taking place just outside of Minneapolis in uh, early February. Go over there. Um, if you go to the, our race calendar and you see some of the events, if you want to look at our entire race calendar, it's a great resource. I think it's the best out there, and it's not because I do stuff for mountain bike radio, but because it's the source for endurance mountain bike events and fat bike events. Go over there, check it out. But if you go to those, you'll, you can actually get a discount code for registering. Um, often those discount codes change. Sometimes they are only up for a limited time. Sometimes the closer we get to the event, the discounts may be reduced. So go over there, get your discount code, and sign up for those races if any of those interest you. Um, so please check that out. Um, so as we wrap up today's show, um, like we did uh, the last show, we want to kind of bring up a little tip, whether you're a starting racer or maybe something you haven't thought about. Um, but I'm going to bring up a tip that I've started doing as I've really gotten back into the swing of things of training. Um, I've been looking forward to getting back in shape, like race shape, and not just from riding a lot, but also like more of a full body thing. And I think that it makes a bigger difference if my core is in shape and my, you know, my shoulders are in shape for riding specific types of events and things like that. So one of the things I've really started doing, especially over the past, it's about three weeks now, is I've started in doing a lot of resistance exercises. But the secret to the way I'm doing it is I do it as, as soon as I come back from my ride. So as soon as I get off my bike, whether it's on the trainer or whether it's um, coming back from a ride, as soon as I walk in the house, I'm still geared up. I take off my shoes. Um, I throw out the the yoga mat or, you know, the lay down on the carpet and knock out the things that I've been looking forward to doing for my core workout, whether that's uh, specific core exercises or maybe 15 minutes of push-ups or pull-ups or sit-ups. Everything I do, I'm already hot. I'm sweating. I'm cooling down before I jump in the shower because I don't want to come out of the shower still sweating. I'm already there. It's so easy. You're already in workout gear. You just get it out of the way. It's a great way for me as I'm like, you know, in between each one of those little exercises, maybe rehydrating or getting a drink or getting a quick bite to eat or, you know, grabbing a, a piece of fruit while I'm still kind of sweating and everything else. Just knock it out of the way. I feel better about it. Yes. When I first started doing it, I will admit that was the last thing I wanted to do, but now I've actually made it part of my routine it's actually what I do. That's part of like my warm down. My legs are relaxed. I'm really not doing anything with my legs as I'm doing core stuff. Nothing that's going to really fatigue them any more than they already are for my ride. But I'm getting some of that core stuff, the back stuff, the ab stuff, the, the shoulder, the neck stuff, doing all those different exercises. It doesn't matter what you're doing, but I've found that it's making a big difference in my riding already. And I'm only three weeks in, but th that core makes all the difference in the world. And it's so easy to do when you're already warmed up from your ride and just knock it out. That way you don't have to separate, set up a separate part of your day to do it. So that's my tip is knocking that stuff out when you're already there working out. Yeah, that's good stuff. I, so I didn't actually, uh, uh, have a specific tip this week, but I'm actually going to piggyback off of what you said there, Mark. Yeah. 
um, with some experience, uh, past experience and lessons learned of my own and that type of thing and things I'm working on now. But it, it, this isn't, I mean, the guys that have been racing a long time and, and racing a while and doing a lot of endurance racing, they, you already know this, but I know there's a lot of listeners that are just getting into this and, uh, you know, using some of these podcasts and that kind of thing to kind of learn about it and, you know, and learn about the sports and learn what races to do. And so some of these other tips, but anyways, taking care of your core is, is huge. If you're going to do endurance racing, uh, mountain bike racing, you gotta take care of your core and your, your upper body, or, you know, you do a couple of hundred mile races and you'll, you'll wreck your upper body. If, if you're not doing pushups and pull-ups and doing some core workouts and, and taking care of yourself. So that, that's going to be my tip. Just going to piggyback off of that. Like, yeah, don't, don't neglect the core and upper body strength exercises. If you're going to spend, you know, three, four plus hours on a mountain bike. Absolutely. And you know, what's funny is, is that, um, plenty of people will, will say before they get this tip in, you know, maybe they're all, maybe they're already, they've already done some hundred milers and stuff like that. And they're like, man, I, one thing I remember about it, man, that my shoulders and my back were killing yeah. me. You know what, yep. After they start doing some core and stuff, they're amazed at being able to race for a hundred miles and exactly what they expect to hurt hurts, which is their legs. Exactly. You know, yeah. Chest from breathing hard and things like that. But the other stuff that you normally don't think of your back, your flank, your abs, your things like that, you don't think it would make a difference in mountain biking. Um, it make, it does make a difference. And when you get rid of some of those Big. problem spots and you can concentrate only, and you don't have to worry about those other little things fatiguing and you can worry about just the main stuff because your core is strong. Now you can just worry about getting it, getting the endurance and the leg fitness there. Yep. And that's such a good thing to get rid of that little nuisance stuff, all those little leg and, or uh, I mean, uh, lower back and shoulder and neck issues. Those things yep. go away with a strong core. And it's, it's nice to, to be at that. Especially if, if you're sitting in the desk all day and that and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, you can. Yeah. And I don't care what you do. I mean, I think, I think it makes all the difference in the world. I, I don't coach, but you know, there's lots of people out there that will, prescribe certain things. And I think it's very individual, whether you're doing yoga, whether you're doing, um, you know, a lot more like planking and ab type stuff, that's fine. Or whether you're doing pure, like, um, if you're doing isometric stuff, or maybe you're doing a lot of like pull up sit-ups, that kind of stuff. I don't think it really makes a difference what you're doing. And it's going to be very dependent on what you like to do, but doing some of that other stuff makes all the difference in the world and getting more of an overall fitness to your body and mountain biking. Yeah. Unlike all the other other types of cycling out there, it really picks on your the worst part of your fitness and then makes it hurt. Um, you'll find what isn't in shape in a hundred mile mountain bike race for sure. Oh yeah, so, yeah. Um, good. That's that's my tip and your tip. So I think those are those are good ones for anyone beginning or even if you've been doing it for a while and you trying to look for a little it 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 makes the problem stuff go away. If you if you're going out and doing a hundred mile race and your legs aren't what hurts the most when you finish, then <laughs> yeah, there, there then you, go. you got something else to do. There so, so. all right, thank you everybody for joining us here on Mountain Bike Radio and the Last Aid Station. Uh, I'm Mark. That's Steve. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, if you have any comments about the show, you can get in touch with us at the Last Aid Station on Facebook. Just Last Aid Station. It's easy, quick fix. I'm um, going there. 
actually like us on Facebook and we'll, you'll stay uh, posted on when we have new shows coming up and what, what's going on with us. Um, the other thing you can do is you can send myself an email at markandmountainbikeradio.com or uh, you can send Steve one at Steve at mountainbikeradio.com or Ben, the the king of all mountain bike radio um, at Ben at mountainbikeradio.com. If you have any comments, questions, maybe some ideas for a show or topics you want us to discuss, especially in this tip section or a question you want to know about how to approach something as far as racing goes, not too much about going into the coaching thing, but we certainly will give you an opinion on what works and what doesn't work for us and what we found um, seems to be an improvement in the way we race or the way we train. So um, thank you very much for joining us. We hope to see you at a race real soon. So take care. Later. Later.